This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Each week, we bring you conversations with authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. Today's episode contains a content warning for discussion of sexual abuse. Please practice self-care and skip this episode if you need to. I'm Amanda McGregor, and I'm a former news journalist and newspaper editor, and now I work at Leslie University on the communications team. And my guest today is a Leslie alumna, Tracy Strauss, and we're here together on Leslie's Dolbel campus to talk about her new book, I Just Haven't Met You Yet, Finding Empowerment in Dating, Love, and Life. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. Your book is part memoir interspersed with open love letters that you've penned to your future life partner. How did you come up with this concept for your book? Um, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, everyone is is always interested in an inception story and how things sort of came to be. And I think for me, in the very beginning, I didn't even I didn't even imagine that this is how the book would turn out. And um, the book the book is probably about a, a fifteen year process of writing and sending it out for publication. And um, it went through various iterations, but in the end. I had tried so many ways to meet my life partner, but I had never tried writing a letter to him. And so it became this way that I could reach out to him and have a conversation, even though I hadn't met him yet. And um, and when I started sharing some of the letters with workshops for feedback, people were really um, drawn in by the intimacy of the letters, mm-hmm. so that the, the letters really, I think, reflect the intimacy of partnership. And then those letters in the book segue into narratives that illustrate the the whole process of a single woman trying to actually find that partnership. So yeah. that's kind of where it came to be. Okay, great. And uh, there are some really funny parts in your book about your escapades into online dating and, and speed dating, like whiskey tastings for a person who doesn't drink. That's natural comedy right there. Uh, but the book also traces your painful and tragic personal story as a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, so first, let's talk about the dating. How did you approach sharing this with your readers? Uh, approach sharing the, the dating, the dating escapades. <laughs> Um, you know, for, for me, um, writing has always been a way in which I uh, cope with life circumstances. And um, dating is not an exception to that. And in a lot of ways, dating can just be so absurd at times, right? So we have yeah. to find a way to have some humor about it. And um, and I began um, sharing my uh, dating stories on Facebook with my closest friends. Mm-hmm. And they became so enthralled with these stories. I was like, but this is my, this is my life. Like, um, this isn't supposed to be funny. This is my life. But then they got me to laugh about it. Uh And I kind of caught on for, for me to this idea of sharing it with a, um, a wider audience. And, um, eventually some of my anecdotes made it, made their way to the Huffington Post. And, um, and that actually, one of one of those pieces actually caught the eye of a producer for a talk show, TV mm-hmm. talk show. So I, I never imagined that it would lead to such a wide audience, but uh, apparently it, it did catch on. <laughs> well, they're great. Um, I mean, you share some horror stories, like this man you met online who went on about he's only how he's only technically married, um, and then trying to get you to come home with him. And um, there was one portion I just wanted to read because I think it's just so indicative of... Um, you know what? Yes. <laughs> what people encounter. Okay, so I'm reading from one of Tracy's chapters here. 
called, it's a chapter called Good Luck to Me, My 1000th Adventure in Online Dating. <laughs> yeah. Sean's online dating profile, including one paragraph, painted a portrait of a smart, single, 38-year-old lawyer, tall and fit with dirty blonde hair and a love of hiking. In his bio, he stated that he valued long-term monogamous relationships and wanted to one day get married and have kids. I held the same priorities and goals. As I sipped a glass of lemonade, I pondered whether a 38-year-old could resemble a man in his mid-50s. Um, and you go on to kind of talk about how... Um, you know, how dishonest his dating profile was. And, and it was really funny. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, how you depict this for readers. You know, um, believe it or not, my goal was to depict the facts and to try not to impose a reaction or uh, slant um, for, for my readers, I wanted my readers to figure, figure that out mm -hmm. themselves. So to kind of recreate that experience on the page, obviously it is from my perspective and being in my skin, um, during that. But, um, so one of the, the things that happens to me, um, generally, but also on dates is, um, I really, um, I, maybe it's just the writer in me. I really pay attention to the details and, and the, um, very minute details of things that are happening around me. And maybe it's just a way that keeps me grounded and in the moment. Um, so, so that for me is just a, a way of recreating the scene on the page and then to bring the moment alive to try to, you know, um, a lot of those days took place in a, in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a, a lot of us have been in a coffee shop from time to time and we see these dates happening and it's a, it's a, it can be a very awkward thing. So I wanted my reader to be able to eavesdrop in a way. Yeah. Um, That's great. Yeah. And you don't drink alcohol or coffee for that matter. <laughs> and anything that illuminates, you know, your journey to navigate dating while staying true to yourself, which is definitely a theme in the book. Yes. Um, what do you want your readers to come away with? with respect to that? It took me a really long time to understand that um, authenticity was the key to finding a really good, real relationship. And for a number of years, I I was trying to live up to the expectations of other people or other people's desires and needs and, and not um, understanding that that wasn't going to work. So that I needed to figure out who I was. And it took me a long time to accept my own flaws. And um, I remember actually um, my final semester here at Leslie, I was um, having dinner with my thesis advisor, Leah Hager-Cohen, and we were talking about um, my writing and about um, you know, things naturally progressed to talking about some of the issues in my writing. and. And, and she said, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could go on a date and just say, well, I don't drink. And I thought, yeah. wow, that's a revolutionary <laughs> concept. Yeah. Um, and she was right. She was right. And it, it can be very freeing to just be you. And actually, in the number of men who I've met who are, uh, to my surprise, relieved to know that I don't drink because they don't drink either. Or they just drink very, you know, in a very limited way. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of times when you say that you don't drink, people are like, why are, are you an alcoholic? Right, and yeah. you know, there are assumptions that are made. And so mm -hmm. a lot of time people, people feel that there's a, there's a reason to be ashamed for if you don't drink alcohol or you don't drink coffee. I don't drink, I love the smell of coffee, but I don't drink it because I just don't like the taste. Mm -hmm. And 
I get caffeine in other ways. You know, there's tea, there's caffeine, there's chocolate, (laughs) there are other other ways, right? So, um, and so, and those are just some symbolic um, ways of of being yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, but really I didn't start finding um, healthy, good, fun, uh, meaningful relationships until I, I just was comfortable being myself. Yeah. Your book is also about your childhood experiences and how those made it overwhelmingly difficult to date and to share sexual intimacy. Can you explain this a little bit for our listeners who may not have read the book yet? Yeah, sure. So um, in part, the book talks about how sexual abuse uh, during my childhood affected uh, my ability to form um, healthy relationships and romantic relationships um, in part. And um and, um, you know, we all have baggage and whatever experience we've had as children or, you know, through our young adulthood, they shape us and they affect how we relate to people. And for me, um, for many years in my, in my twenties, I isolated myself and, um, out of, you know, not having dealt with my history. And so that affected, that affected my, my social development. And, and, um, and that's very common for, um, sexual abuse survivors. And so, um, the book talks about the, the need to face my history in order to move forward in my life. And so, um, it wasn't until I went to therapy and really looked at, um, what had happened to me and, and the many ways that it affected not just my romantic life, but other, other aspects of my life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, could I actually see, you know, they say knowledge is power and it really is. Yeah. Once you know, then you can do something about it. And yeah. so it took a number of years before I could um, really put myself out there in a way that was going to be um, productive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, and I, I and, and, when you go on dates, you know, many times the, the, um, frequent question is, well, how many relationships have you had? Or, you know, talking about your relationship history. And I, um, had to grow comfortable with sharing, well, I had something happen to me and I decided to take the time Mm -hmm. to examine myself so that I would be, um, ready and, and able to be in a healthy relationship rather than, going into a relationship and it becoming a train wreck. And, um, and so, and so, you know, there are choices that we make, but ultimately dealing with whatever has happened to us can only help us to move forward and, and to be in relationship with others. Yeah. When I read online reviews of your book on Goodreads and Amazon and other places, the words honest and brave keep coming up. When did you decide you were ready to share your childhood sexual trauma and your PTSD and your journey to healing? Wow, that's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Wow. Okay. Um, I think in in the very beginning, after I was diagnosed with um, PTSD, I wrote just for for myself. I didn't want to share my story with with people. Um, I was afraid of their reactions, and then. Um, you know, at, at that time in my life, as I, as I mentioned previously, I, I really isolated myself mm-hmm. and I, um, I really wanted to be connected with other people and I wanted to be in community with other people. And in order to do that, I needed to share m- my story. People were sharing their stories mm-hmm. 
And, and I realized I needed to share mine. And so, um, it was really hard to do that yeah. at first. Um, when I disclosed my story, uh, I talk about this in the book, um, to my mother, for example, her reaction was, um, oh, it, it was, um, very upsetting. She, she told me she didn't want me to talk about it anymore that she, she wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. She wouldn't be able to do her job or, um, really live her life mm -hmm. if she knew what had happened, even though she said she knew that it happened. So there was a, there was a need for denial. There was a need for silence mm -hmm. in order to, um, protect her, to protect people that I loved. Yeah. And so I was afraid when I came out in public that I would get the same reaction. And, um, it just became a choice that I made that I either needed to live my life or not live at all. And so I, um, I took the step and I enrolled in workshops and, um, some of those workshops were very positive experiences. Some of them were, um, very scary experiences for me. The reactions ran the gamut. Some, some, you know, people who really related to what I was saying and, um, others who um, praised the writing, um, and then others who reacted out of their own fears regarding sexual abuse. And I came to understand that there's a, a cultural condition, fear around um, looking at, hearing about, acknowledging, talking about, dealing with sexual violence yeah. in, our, in our society. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, that was something that I wasn't prepared for when I first decided to share my story, but it was something that I needed to grapple with. And then I had to learn to grapple with on the page. Otherwise my readers were not going to stay on that journey with me. And so I began this, it was a several year journey, um, eight to 10 year journey of trying to figure out what writing techniques I needed to use to help my readers, um, who had various experiences, um, to be able to accept my story, learn from it, um, connect with it. And much of your book is dedicated to this journey of recovery from the complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And this all began, the recovery began when you met Dr. Ross, your therapist, mm -hmm. when you were 28. And you were meeting with him three times weekly, working really hard uh, to recover. And I, I found it really illuminating. Did you intend to give readers a better understanding of PTSD? Because I certainly came away with a much better one than I had previously. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, you know, I, I've never felt like I could speak for other people's experiences with PTSD, uh, but I could speak to my own. And so um, if if that helps people to understand more of what it's about, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and there, and there's, you know, everyone has their own, um, sort of set of symptoms and, um, you know, stories behind it and, and how they cope and how they recover. But I think a, a lot of us, um, it, it is very hard for people who haven't experienced it to understand really what it's like. And so if, if I could recreate that in some way that that's understandable, um, yeah. I'm glad. I'm and you describe it so well in your writing, you know, again, I feel like I'm right there with you and it, I come away with empathy and understanding. So that's great. It's really Thank a you. good experience as a reader. So well done Thanks. there. Um, and you also write about the power of animals and relationships with animals in your case, cats, how can animals help in recovery from trauma? Oh, I mean, 
animals have unconditional love. Um, and many animals also come from very difficult, traumatic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, um, in my own experience, um, I, I, uh, could see in sort of a compressed way, the way that, that my own cat, who I describe in the book, Hannah, um, was, was uh, able to heal from her own traumatic past in, in a way that was sort of um, uh, foreshadowing my own. I, I mean, part, part, of, part of our healing happened together, but hers, you know, cat's life is much shorter than a human's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, her, I, I got to witness that and to see her really um, become the, um, the being who she who she was born as, you know, and that was, that was just amazing. And at what point in your journey did you enroll here at Leslie University in the master's program in creative writing? And why did you choose Leslie? Um, I, um, I enrolled here in in 2011 and I had been working on the story for, um, I would say, um, six or seven years at that point. Um, and I came to a turning point, um, and, uh, decided that I wanted to devote time to really getting the manuscript into the the shape that it needed to be in. I was really committed at that point to um, getting my story out there in the best way possible. So I wanted to um, really go back to learning um, skills and techniques for storytelling and also to have the deadlines mm-hmm. to really get me to to commit to getting the manuscript finished. Um, and then it, it just so happened that life converged and the, the semester that I started, my mother passed away. And so the um, um, a, a lot of what's what's in the book now hadn't actually happened until then. Mm. So a lot of the material that I started to generate, during the program made it into the book and it, it wouldn't have been there previously. Yeah. So I really w- am grateful for the, the guidance that I had from my mentors in the MFA program during that time. They were, they were just really compassionate and really encouraging. And, um, and I learned a lot from my classmates and in workshops and, um, also at the time I, I, I basically lived, um, across the street from Leslie. So it was so convenient to just to be here and I had to work full time Mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I didn't have the, um, the means to, to not work and go to school. So being at Leslie allowed me to do both. And some of the people that you thank and acknowledge, um, in your book are your Leslie university professors, including Leah Hager Cohen and Rachel Kadish and Kyoko Mori. So what role did they play, you know, in this, this final book here, you know, each of them, and um, and I started off with with um, with Alex Johnson, um, my first semester, and uh, each of them brought a new new perspective to my work and new a new way for me to look at how I was presenting my story. And so, what I loved about the program was this ability to learn from um, successful writers in um, who had who had different um, interests, different uh, ways of approaching material, and then to figure out um, what was then my particular way of, of looking at my material. So to learn from from writers who who have such a unique um, 
and uh, a unique sort of stamp mm-hmm. on um, the the their their careers in writing was mm-hmm. a was a great inspiration for me. It was a challenge to find a publisher who wanted to tell your story because the subject is a tough sell, so to speak. What advice do you have for other writers in a similar situation? Uh, I'd say the first thing is to master the industry. Don't let the industry master you. Okay, good advice. And uh, persist, persist, persist. I um, I went through a ten year a ten year process of of trying to get the book published. That that did include going to workshops, writers conferences, and networking with industry professionals, and kind of learning what were the trends in the industry, what were people saying in the industry about certain subject matter, and I, you know, I I heard things like, um, "Do not send us anything that has um, a context of sexual abuse. Um, the market is flooded with such stories, or um, there's no readership for such stories," and those were paradoxical statements and and I did my research and they weren't true and and so um so for for my own journey I needed to figure out how do I get around that who are my helpers mm-hmm. um I had a lot of doors that would open and then shut Ugh. um I queried over 300 literary agents oh my goodness I signed with three of them on separate manuscripts separate iterations of the manuscript over the course of the decade um, and, uh, the, the final agent, um, well, I'll say previously, uh, one of the, one of the agents actually, um, the manuscript went to a, a very large commercial publisher and the executive editor held on to that manuscript for 10 months mm-hmm. and we were supposed to have a meeting and I thought it was going to happen. And I was so excited. I was like, this is it. This is it. It's happening. And then nothing happened. We had radio silence. And then finally it was determined that the publisher wasn't going to take on memoir anymore because they had a, a really bad sell for one of their memoirs. And so it was like ups and downs and thinking, you know, the, the open door was now closed. Does that mean I should give up? And then my, my last agent um, submitted the work and um, uh, 11 editors declined. And she decided that that was the end of the row for her and she wasn't going to submit any further. And, um, and I really thought it was the end of the road for me as well, because it had been it had been ten years, and I thought maybe maybe I really maybe the, all signs point to no, and I've just been masochistic trying to get this to happen. Um, and I got very depressed. And one of my writer friends said, "You know, you need to write about your experience trying to publish this story, and tell the world like what." what this has been like and, and why, why is it that there is such an issue with, I mean, my book is about so much more than sexual violence. That is part of the context, but it is so much bigger than that. I am so much bigger than that. And why is it that publishers can't see that as well? And I was depressed. So I thought, well, what's the point? What's the point in writing something like this? And uh, but I ended up writing about it because for me, writing has always been the thing that keeps my head above water. Mm-hmm. So when I'm feeling really low, writing is the thing that keeps me going. So I wrote it and um, I didn't want it to be some bitch and moan essay. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it to be the facts of yeah. what had happened. And um, Publishers Weekly picked it up, which shocked me because <laughs> um, they are the face of the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the original piece was 1500 words and, um, 
the editor said, well, we need to cut this to 824. Can you do it? I was like, yes, I can do it. <laughs> and so um, my, one of my um, um, uh, course responsibilities as a um, graduating um, graduate student here was to do a seminar on concision. And I put it to use <laughs> for this essay. <laughs> and so the, the piece was published and my, my publisher for I Just Haven't Met You Yet reached out and said, um, um, can you send us the manuscript? And two weeks later they offered to publish it. So wow. I never, I didn't think that that would happen if my friend hadn't said, you need to write about this. Yeah. I don't, maybe I would have at some point, mm -hmm. but I never thought that it would lead to the book finally happening. Yeah. So oh, that's you a just, story. yeah, you just, even when you think the, um, it's a dead end or, mm -hmm. you know, this, that the, the, the journey is over. Well, no, it is just beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's inspiring. <laughs> and if I had given up, I would never have published the book. Right. Right. So, so, uh, in addition to the physical abuse and sexual abuse you talk about in the book, you also experience psychological torment. Mm -hmm. um, at one point in the story, while you're in college, your abuser creates a fake email address and poses as a secret admirer. And throughout the book, it's really painful to read about the loving adults in your life who miss the signs or perhaps subconsciously chose not to see them. Um, can you talk about your process of coming to terms with loved ones and namely your mother? Yes, yes. Um, you know, and, and I, I want to preface this by saying that, that, um, my experience is only my experience. And, um, for those who are dealing with loved ones, it's a very complicated thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, everyone has their own, uh, has their own way of navigating this. So yeah. for me, it was, it was, um, a process of, of coming to terms with my mother's limitations and, understanding how much she really did love me mm -hmm. and I loved her. And, um, there was a moment when she, um, had, she had just been diagnosed with ovarian cancer mm -hmm. and I was scheduled to give a reading at, um, um, a writer's, uh, for, for a, uh, literary journal, um, at a writer's conference. And, um, I went to the reading and um, my mother wanted a copy of the piece and um, the piece dealt with, you know, some psychological torment from our family. And um, my mother, my mother was a writer and an editor and she always encouraged me to write, but she was afraid of my writing about our family. And she, she was afraid because she felt that people wouldn't like us anymore and that we would be, um, ostracized yeah. and, and that was part of her her own way of seeing the world from her own traumas mm -hmm. and um so I had really mixed feelings about this piece and she wanted to read it so I was like okay I'll bring you a copy and I um went to visit her and she she took the copy of the journal and she started reading and I was like you're gonna read it now and she said why you don't want me to I said, no, that's fine. But I was really worried because she had previously said she couldn't handle um, hearing about my truth. And I and she had just been diagnosed with a very serious cancer. And I was worried about how it would affect her. And um, 
but that was her church decision. And so she read it in front of me and she had this moment of, um, um, deep, um, apology. And she, she, um, and I, I portray this in the book where, mm-hmm. where she, she really reached out to me in a way that was very genuine and that really touched me deeply. And I, and I understood in that moment, um, just how sorry she was that she wasn't able to protect me as a child and um, acknowledging her own limitations and um, her, you know, her flaws and her, her part in enabling the abuse to happen. It was a really short window of time. She went back to her deflecting and avoidance after that. But I think that for me was, was what um, allowed me to come to, um, a place of reconciliation with her and it didn't actually happen right away. It, it was, you know, about a year later yeah. that, that suddenly, uh, suddenly I felt this forgiveness mm-hmm. toward her. And I was always really um, conflicted about what forgiveness was. And people would say, you have to forgive like, There's a, that you're supposed to forgive. And I, you can't force that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, for me, it, it ended up becoming a way of letting go of what I couldn't change. Yeah. And so, um, thankfully I was actually able to do that, um, while she was still alive. And, um, uh, but it was, it was such a, a really complicated process. And mm-hmm. so, um, I've actually gotten a lot of feedback from readers, um, over the years, not even just from the book, but some essays I've written uh-huh. about, um, my relationship with my mother, just about, forgiveness and how it is that you um, come to terms with family members when, when, when a real crisis has happened. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. You also deal very honestly with your mother's death and your complex emotions around that. What was it like to write about all of this? Oh, it, um, you know, for, for me, it was happening, uh, as I mentioned, while I was a student here at Leslie yeah. and, um, it, it, it became a way first for me to, um, sort of, uh, have some sort of sense of control over something that I had no control over. Mm-hmm. For me, writing is a, is a way of, of having sort of getting some sort of empowerment. There's something about language that for me to be able to capture something on the page and experience on the page, it's a way of, of, um, feeling empowered. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that was, uh, sort of where I, where I was coming from my motivation for writing about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, eventually we all experience the death of, of a parent Mm -hmm. and, um, it, it can, it can be, I mean, it's, it's devastating in a number of ways. And how do, how is it that we move forward from that? How is it that we can still live our lives and maybe even live better lives mm-hmm. once we've gone through that? So that was important to me. Um, you know, in, in, um, sharing with my audience that there's a way to, um, for lack of a better word, transcend something that's, that's just tragic. How do people in your life, like your brother and your aunt and friends and colleagues feel about you writing this book? That's a great question. 
Um, I don't want to speak for them, but um, but I did I did share the manuscript um, with with them um, at at various stages, and um, it was really important to me to um, first of all make sure that I um, was being factually correct if the, you know and if there was anything that that they felt was not true. Um, that I would change that. And if there, if there were, um, you know, moments of, uh, that inadvertently, um, invaded their privacy, I wanted to know that so that I could, um, not invade their privacy and change that in the manuscript. So I made sure to just to do that. And also, you know, t- I, you know, I, I, my, my, my aunt was, um, amazing in reading this manuscript. Um, she, um, she had every, appropriate emotion to every difficult, serious, funny, um, experience that's in the book. And it was, it was, I I don't even know I have the words for it and I'm a writer. I should have the words for it, but it, it meant so much to me to hear from her, um, her reactions to the book and she actually ended up um she um came with me to my book launch in new york she surprised me at harvard bookstore here in um in cambridge and um it's just it's meant the world to me to have to have her presence and the presence of my family and my friends um as this book has come out it's been it's it's been more than than i ever imagined for readers familiar with the Cambridge and Boston area, it's a joy to imagine your dates and your life around the city navigating Crema um, Cafe and the Center for Adult Education and Harvard Yard. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you use sense of place you know, in your memoir? Yes. Um, I've, uh, Boston for me has always been just an inspiring literary community and um I, you know, I, I grew up in New York and I, I, um, when I, when I moved here, um, I originally came for a graduate school, not at Leslie, but, um, I, I have, uh, another, another graduate degree, uh, from Boston university. And, um, I came here in the late nineties and I just, I loved it here. And then I wasn't able to stay financially. I couldn't, I just couldn't make it here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went back to New York for a job and then I missed it so much that I, I came back and I, and I vowed that when I came back here, I would never take anything for granted here, especially the literary community. And so, um, um, a lot of my experiences in the book took place here and it was important for me to make this place come alive mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah, you um, really do. And in a way, in, in a way it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a, for me, a, a tribute to the place that has inspired me so much. Um, Unfortunately, Crema Cafe is closed now. I was so sad uh, when I read that part. Yeah. Um, But this this area has been such a big part of my life that um, to not have it, I mean, it's a character really in the the book itself. And Mm -hmm. um, so to not have it in the book was just not not an option. Mm -hmm. Um, And and also I think, um, you know, when when we're writing about, in particular when we're writing about trauma, one of the ways that we can mitigate some of that on the, on the page is to ground the reader in setting. Mm-hmm. And so to um, bring that the reader into place and time 
um, has always been an important aspect of, of telling the story. It's really interesting. And I can see how effective it is now that you articulated. That's what you're doing with me. Yep. That's great. You teach writing now. Where do you teach and what are you teaching? I teach uh, writing and liberal arts at the New England Conservatory. And I also, um, from time to time, I teach uh, workshops at um, Grub Street. Um, I recently taught a workshop there on uh, writing narrative fiction about uh, sexual violence mm-hmm. for survivors, um, which was a an incredibly um, intense and meaningful uh, workshop to teach. But uh, my, my full-time gig is um, teaching um, college writing, film studies, and literature um, to music students. Great. So it's, it's, a, it's a different uh, different perspective, bringing a different perspective to writing. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to be a writer, one thing to teach writing. Yes. How do you kind of navigate those two, that duality, I guess? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it sometimes teaching writing fuels my writing. If I'm teaching like a creative writing, um, uh, and um, other times it's uh, more formulaic writing, like college writing, and so that that is more of a um, it imposes a, ideas about structure, and so um, you know when, when I'm teaching students just allowing them to um, understand the tools of sharing their voices, their unique voices with the world like that, that to me, that kind of empowerment is really important to me. And it, it, um, I consider teaching a vocation and, you know, along with writing, it's sort of an extension of, yeah. of writing in that way. Let's talk about the title of your book. Why did you, <laughs> why did you choose a Michael Buble song? <laughs> I know some people are like, please, why did you do that? Now, now people have it in their heads, but it's not a bad thing. Um, I was stuck in traffic. Um, I had, a, I had a sick cat at the time. I was stuck in traffic after picking up um, cat food for this cat. And um, I was sitting there and the song came on the radio and I I was having a really difficult time at, at that point in time. I, I just felt really stuck in my life and here I was sitting in traffic. So I was stuck and the stuckness mm-hmm. was just permeating everything. And there's this hopefulness in this song. I just haven't met you yet that um, I had always had in my life, but I had lost in that moment. And so when I heard the song, um, that to me was what the title of the book needed to be. And it wasn't even so much, you know, the, 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 uh, the love relationship part of the song, but it was the hopefulness and in, in life in a more general sense and, and not allowing that hope to, um, to die off even when things got, got difficult. Yeah. In the end, one of your key messages to readers is about the notion of finding a partner rather than someone who completes us, so to speak. Can you talk about this? Yeah, so um, you know the the Jerry Maguire movie, um, and the the famous line from there is "You complete me," mm-hmm. and then the other one says "You complete me," and um, that that's about codependency mm-hmm. um, rather than a true partnership, from my perspective, anyway. And so, um, and I didn't always understand that, and. Um, the the myth about relationships, I think, is that you find your partner and now your whole life is complete mm-hmm. and and 
you've reached the finish line and now you're all set. And that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, relationships are not perfect. Relationships have lots of conflict and, and, and hopefully in a relationship there's growth and individual growth as well as growth as a couple. So, so part of the, the lessons, um, the big lesson that I learned was this idea of what it was that I wanted in a partnership. And it wasn't two halves make a whole. It was two holes make a couple. Yeah. That's great. That was a really important takeaway, I thought. Now that you have a book and your essays on dating are widely published, does this ever interfere with dating? And are men ever afraid they'll become fodder for a future essay or social media post? Great question. I don't, I don't advertise that, um, I write about dating now, you know, um, I, I recently, I recently, um, I recently dated a guy, um, who, uh, bought my book and, um, read the first 50 pages and, um, and he, he, I had, I had shared with him about my history before, um, he started reading the book. So, um, there's this interesting thing that takes place, uh, in, in terms of disclosure and how it is that you want to, um, uh, share yourself with a partner and what is the pace for that? Is it, you give your, your, your book to your partner and they read up on your story. Well, not many people do that, right? <laughs> yes, I have a book and yes, I have these essays, but, um, I think the, 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 uh, the thing that I always, um, subscribe to is I've written these things, but this is only a small part of what it is that I want you to know. Um, this is to me, writing is an art form. And so the product, the essay or the book is an art form. It is not, um, my whole life. It is not the whole of me. And so, um, the, this person who I was dating, actually, we made a decision that he wasn't going to read the book until we got to know each other more. And so, and I found that to be a really important thing as well. Um, um, and then also as he started reading, I would say, okay, if you have any questions, let me know, or, you know, please don't come to certain assumptions just based upon what you've read in this book. This is, you know, so I I think there's, there's a risk of people making incorrect assumptions by what they read. And it's not even just for my own material, but you know, online dating profiles, we make assumptions all the time Mm -hmm. about the people who we're meeting online and then we meet them in person and and there's, they don't match up, you know, and I, I know I've talked in the book about not matching up, um, factually speaking, (laughs) but, but personality wise Mm -hmm. is more of what I'm talking about here is, is you really don't know the, the actual person until you get to know them in person. So it is complicated, right? Because I've written about, um, my history and my dates. Um, but, um, but I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that at the moment and I haven't for a while. So I think the guys who I've met, you know, in the last couple of years or so understand that, um, it's okay. The book has been written. (laughs) (laughs) You're safe for now. Although there could be a modern love essay, you know, in the works. (laughs) Let's end on one of your poignant and humorous anecdotes from the book. When you take a big step of going on vacation by yourself to Acadia National Park, um, and there's a lot of personal growth. There's also some, 
you know, humor, you yes. get seasick on a sunset yes. kayaking ride. Um, but, you know, it seems like this journey sort of illuminates the overall story in some ways. Can you talk a little bit about sharing that? Yeah, I, I had learned, um, my mother had this belief that, um, single woman, single women, uh, it, it was too dangerous for a single woman to, um, travel alone. And by dangerous, I mean that, uh, she believed that there was a real risk that, uh, the woman or I, I in particular, her daughter would get raped and killed. And she, she had seen a story on the news that kind of just became this global thing in her mind, um, about abduction. And so after she died, I had to decide it was, it was easier after she died to, to decide if I was going to still subscribe to her beliefs or not. And I decided I was going to venture off and go on this solo trip. And, um, and, you know, from even just from driving there and, and then getting there and then deciding what I was going to do, I decided to go on this sunset, um, kayaking tour because I really wanted to. And then I showed up and I was the only single person and I didn't think about that before I got there. And, you know, the other couples were, had, there were two, two, two people in a kayak. And then there was me in one, a single and the two people kayaked a lot faster than, than I did. And that was just, and it became this metaphor for me of, Oh, you know, um, I'm this single person just trying to paddle through life. Right. Yeah, and then right. we have the, these couples who are doing this together and it seems like it's so much easier for them. And, and, you know, and, and I think we fall into that trap of thinking, the grass is, you know, the grass is greener. Yep. Um, and yet my, my married friends were like, Oh, it's so great. You get to go on this trip by yourself and do your own thing. And, you know, you don't have to worry about anybody else's schedules or what they want to do. And I was like, okay. So, so they saw me as being the lucky one. Um, and so that trip for me became, um, really, a, a, a an education or a, uh, I had this, this light bulb moment just about what it meant to be, alone but not alone mm -hmm. and to be part of a greater community and, and I had this moment on on the top of Cadillac Mountain um that, and I won't go into too much detail about it so readers can just read it but just this this it just suddenly kind of made sense to me about my place and um where I was at and where I was going and um and, and I, and I just had this sense of peace about it. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for this honest and important book and for speaking with me today. And, um, I look forward to our listeners picking up the book and enjoying it themselves. And it's just been a pleasure and an honor to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real honor to, to be back at Leslie and to, to talk about this book that I never thought would get published and then it did. So thanks so much for having me. Um, and uh, I look forward to, to hearing from readers. I, I'm always happy to, to chat with, with folks about the book. Okay, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Why We Write. For more information on Tracy and her book, I Just Haven't Met You Yet, as well as our episode archive, visit our website, www.leslie.edu slash podcast. You'll find a link in our show notes. Next week, we're speaking with Jasmine Warga, author of Other Words for Home, a middle grade novel that is appearing on lots of year-end best of lists. 
Subscribe to While We Write in the podcast platform of your choice so that you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.